Sometimes it feels like the sun will never rise, like the birds will never sing again. Believe in a power greater than what you are going through when you don't know what to do. That's right. When you don't know what to do, just keep on breathing. From Los Angeles, the City of Angels, I'm Dave Nassani, Caregiver Dave at caregiverdave.com. I usually have my lovely co-host Adrian Gruberg from thecaregiverspace.org, but she is unable to make it today, so I am solo. And we're coming to you live and on demand 24-7 on numerous syndicated radio and podcast networks on 26 global audio and video platforms, Platforms like iHeartRadio, iTunes, YouTube, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Vimeo, Stitcher Radio, Blog Talk Radio, CastBox, MixCloud, and about 16 others. And we're very proud to be voted number one po caregiver podcast of the top 50 on Player FM and number two caregiver podcast on Feedspot out of the top 60, as well as number two caregiver podcast on CaringVillage.com. And we have an especially exciting show planned for you today. Dr. Von Bonhoeffer, and he is a global expert on infectious diseases and vaccine safety, and a thought leader on efforts to transform how medical professionals care for their patients and themselves. And his new book, Dare to Care, How to Survive and Thrive in Today's Medical World, is selling like hotcakes, I would presume, because this is a topic that everybody's talking about and that nobody can agree on. <laughs> But before we get to the show, I just want to take uh, this moment and thank last week's guest, um, Lindy Lewis, Progress Not Perfection. She's a recovering, authentic alpha female who, through sharing her humbling blocks and pivotal collection of tips and tools, to live an empowered and full-color life. And just a reminder, you can watch or listen to that interview and all our interviews on all our membership uh, websites and uh, caregiverdave.com and the 26 global networks that I mentioned, as well as the show we're doing today right now. All right, enough of that. Author of Dare to Care, How to Survive and Thrive Today, Dr. John Von, Dr. Jan Bonhoeffer, excuse me. Welcome to the show. We're so excited to have you on. Thank you, Dave. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you. And I always like to ask my guests the first question, just who is Dr. Von Bonhoeffer and why was he placed on this earth? <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, well, it feels Coming like... all the way from Switzerland. <laughs> yeah, it, it feels like grace. It feels, um, well, who am I to know? Why? <laughs> but the, the one aware of living is uh, experiencing deep gratefulness of uh, being allowed to spend time on this marvelous planet. That's a great answer. Forgiveness uh, keeps a lot of bad things away, doesn't it? Um, they say that cancer and ulcers and just internalizing all sorts of things, you know, we. I like to say unforgiveness is like drinking poison and hoping the other person will die. Do you agree? Oh, yes. <laughs> there is a, as, as so, an infection. Uh -huh. uh, as a former consultant to the World Health Organization and the CDC, who led a global vaccine safety initiative, what questions do you think we should be asking about the new COVID-19 vaccines? We're so honored to have you here speaking about this subject. You know, I've had Dr. Mark Siegel on from um, uh, from Fox News. Uh, he's a Fox News contributor, and uh, it was a very good show. And he was uh, enlightening us on all sorts of things that we don't normally hear in the media. And uh, in today's media, boy, if you disagree with anything, they'll just cut you off. They'll cancel you. They'll 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 just uh, it's called cancel culture. I think they. You know, America used to be a place where we debated, and that's how you come to the truth. You debate your side, and let him debate his side, and then we can decide what makes sense, you know, and we can follow. We want to follow the science, don't we? 
So go ahead and, and tell us what questions you think we should be asking. Well, thank you. I think this is a really important point you're making, is that um, actually most advances in medicine have been made at the outliers, have been made by people who were willing to live courageously and, and stand by their insights and typically were ridiculed at the time of putting their um, opinions forward. You know, think about the current state-of-the-art treatment of um, heart failure. Think about uh, heart attacks. Think about you know, a, lot of, a lot of what we know today as treatments. Um, infections. As infections. They laughed at everything. They, they mocked and ridiculed everything. And, and some things, the more things change, the more they stay the same, don't they? Now you're, you're mocked yeah. if you consider uh, a drug to combat COVID-19. Yeah. I think one of the key questions to ask is, um, why did we start the immunization campaign? And I guess the key <clears throat> aim of this campaign was to see that we have ICU units uh, stay reasonably packed and not overcrowded, so we're ending in um, ethical dilemmas that nobody wants to be in. And we want to see that the hospitals can actually serve everybody in, in a meaningful way. Um, so overcrowding was really one of the key attempts. And this has kind of shifted a little bit during the campaign now. So particularly when we're now moving to adolescents and children as a pediatrician and a pediatric infectious disease person, I'm a little bit more cautious than the current law. <laughs> so I'm not quite sure if this is really the right way forward, um, that we're immunizing those who um, are clearly not suffering as much as uh, those that are identified risk groups. And uh, we don't really have the safety data together right yet, right now. So, Well, I can think of questions right off the bat. Uh, number one, in the past, didn't we um, quarantine and, and isolate those who were sick as opposed to quarantining and isolating <laughs> those who are well? It seems like we're doing it backwards. Yeah, and and in some to some degree, we are in a quite unprecedented situation. Arab, that really there is a global uh, infectious disease spreading in the way that it does, and we're faced with the kind of helplessness that we're observing, and that is kind of smudged over by strong opinions. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> it would be, I feel, the scientific approach that you um, lauded. <laughs> Uh, is it would really help us. So the open-mindedness of a PhD helps more than the opinionatedness of the politician. Yes. You know, you say that we're facing a pandemic of fear, quote-unquote, <laughs> and that it is potentially longer-lasting and more damaging than COVID-19 itself. Would you please explain that? Yeah, it's very evident. Um, when we see in how we actually moved into this pandemic, um, a lot of our actions were driven by fear, were driven by helplessness and an urge to act. And um, we're now seeing the consequences. So when I see now, for example, as a as a primary care pediatrician in 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 Switzerland, a, a comparatively affluent country. I see so much suffering now of people who are families who are now really taking the consequences and have to live the consequences of how we handled this pandemic. In many ways, we're learning that, that the steps we have taken might not have been the wisest. Mm -hmm. And um, I hope that there's a learning that acting in a fear-driven way is something that we're very used to in the way that Western medicine works. We're trying to get rid of disease. And there's a completely different mindset available and maybe a heart set available. It's not so much fighting disease, but actually promoting health. And I wonder what it might look like, what, what might be different if we were treating, if we we're approaching a pandemic from this point of view. You know, people are wondering, I'm sure, uh, who you are and uh, what you know and what makes you an authority on this topic. Why don't you give a brief resume of why you should be even talking about this? How do you know what you know 
and why why we should listen to you. There are so many voices out there. <laughs> And, nobody, and why YouTube hasn't <laughs> censored you yet? <laughs> <laughs> well, YouTube, no, nobody should listen. <laughs> so what, what, my background is that I'm a professor of pediatrics at the University of Basel, and my specialty is in vaccines. And I worked uh, for 20 years in a global network of vaccine safety specialists. And our, our aim was really to conduct and to promote independent, rigorous science in the field to see that we get beyond the opinions and beyond the fear on both sides, pro and con, and really just see, can we clarify the questions at hand? And so in this uh, effort, I was uh, honored to work with the CDC and the World Health Organization and mm. the European CDC and other kind of national authorities um, in developing and advising global immunization programs and developing safety monitoring systems. So this has been my this has been my profession for the last 25 years. That's pretty impressive. Um, how does Switzerland and the United States differ and are similar mm -hmm. in how they handled uh, COVID-19? Oh, <laughs> that's mm -hmm. a big, <laughs> that's a big topic. Thank you, Tom. Well, it's, it's a, I guess we're looking at very different cultures. We're looking at very different um, populations, very different needs. Um, the That's an interesting comment. How would you, because um, I've met people from Switzerland, they seem like normal people. They, they almost seem like Americans except for their accent. How are Americans and Swiss different when you say different cultures? Let's start with that. Is, is there is there an American? <laughs> like, what is an American? Is there an American culture? <laughs> like, hmm. I don't know. The rest of the world would have to answer that one. <laughs> I, I guess um, one of the beauties about this this amazing country is is the variety and and the differences and and actually learning and thriving on. on Which one are we talking about? The amazing country of Switzerland, or the amazing country of the America? U.S. I like okay. to talk about. Yeah. U.S. Yeah, so there's the the, the cultural differences um, while providing a conflict um, and and um, a source for conflict. Uh, this it's an amazing resource to learn from each other and to grow in an incredibly creative way. And this is what we're observing from Switzerland. <laughs> um, is this uh, this very um, creative and inspiring and out of the box um, if you like, non-deliberately non-traditional um, approach, and Switzerland, in to some degree, is kind. Of, it, it appears again, like who's a Swiss, but the, it appears more, you know, traditional and more rooted in in European culture, and more kind of conservative, and maybe you know, taking the second step first. And it doesn't mean that there is no innovation in Switzerland, but yeah, sure. it, I think. There's a different kind of general culture, yeah. I get it. Okay, now that you've defined that, uh, you were going to mention the difference between how uh, the U.S. and Switzerland have approached COVID-19. Yeah. Um, what I what I perceived in Switzerland is is that I felt it was um, approached quite masterfully, given the um, uncertainties and I felt that there was a lot of willingness to f to face and accept the uncertainties and and go slow. And that was not to the liking of everybody. <laughs> but uh, in many ways, I felt it was a wise approach to not be quite extreme, you know, not ignore what is at hand. Um, so be, you know, timely in the actions, but not kind of try and run ahead. And I have seen very little opinionatedness here, kind of overt opinionatedness. Uh -huh. And this is something that probably has been part of um, the politics, as far as it is, as far as as far as it was observable from Switzerland. Sure. <laughs> um, that is that is there, and that's a when it's about being right and wrong, and when it's when health becomes a political gameplay, um, this is painful to somebody who actually cares for patients. Um, so you talk about going slow. I assume you mean uh, taking your time to find the vaccine, doing it, uh, you know, like you've done all vaccines, uh, one, two, three, four years, uh, trials, et cetera. 
Is that what you mean by going slow? Yeah, in terms of due diligence, do the due diligence yeah. before you know before we're implementing measures like going on a lockdown in a country, before we implement measures like everybody needs to wear a mask, before we close all schools in the country, <laughs> you know, it it might it might actually help us to collect data and see what we can do to actually support these actions. Well, of course, they did it because um, infections were were skyrocketing and um, getting out of control, according to them, whoever them is. Uh, and so um, how do you collect data and take your time and be slow when um, it appears to be getting worse and worse? Uh, and masks, you know, first they said that, well, don't wear a mask because it, it doesn't help anyway. A virus is smaller than the material. It'll just give you a false sense of security. And all of a sudden uh, telling us you must wear masks. And it doesn't matter what kind of mask. You can wear a, a T-shirt and... Um, I'm confused. Maybe you can straighten me out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, it is. It is confusing, and and I guess um, this is part of the. Um, this is why it is so important to communicate the current state of ignorance and accept it. So, if we are actually saying we don't know, um, but we're looking at this question and this question and this question, and this is what the process is, this is maybe more helpful. Um, uh, for a population to follow the learning process that everybody's going through. And I guess there is a need by by those who need to sell stuff, and there's a need by those who want to be reelected <laughs> to, uh, to have a strong opinion. <laughs> and yeah. that's understandable, <laughs> but it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's so, not the scientific So you know the death counts. Um, yeah. And now we have the privilege uh, and the luxury of looking backward. If we did go slow, would less people have died than going fast with this vaccine? Um, because, I mean, it seems to be under control now. I don't know why it's under control. Is it under control because we vaccinated a third of, of the world or Americans? Uh, or it, did it just uh, automatically uh, happen to be uh, herd immunity? Or was it just destined to die anyway? Are there strains that are going to come back and haunt us? Which which method uh, would have translated into uh, fewer deaths, the slow method or the method that apparently the U.S. took? Yeah. Um, I'm not sure there's a right answer here. So um, it would be the only illness, I guess, or the only condition that we're looking at that has one right solution. Um, typically, there are many, many contributing factors. And... The vaccine is very clearly one of the ways that, or the vaccines are, are one approach to uh, decreasing transmission and increasing immunity. We're far away from herd immunity. Um, that would require some 80% or more to be immunized. So, um, but yes, we know from the first uh, kind of post licensure data that. Um, the vaccines are effective um, and that uh, with several of the leading vaccines that were rolled out early and that we have now the data from um, are actually reducing, you know, hospitalization by 70, 80% and that they're reducing the death um, rates and mortality rates. So, yes, we know they're effective. We also know about the safety right now and it's quite encouraging so far what we're seeing. Are they safe? Yeah, what we're saying, I think, what we're seeing so far is quite encouraging, but we have to, what what do we expect from such a vaccine? So I guess when when my risk dying of COVID is very high, I'm willing to take a higher risk of on the safety side of a vaccine. I'm basically mm -hmm. a healthy person and very unlikely to have any serious course of the disease, um, then first do no harm. <laughs> Is a very sure. different meaning, and then I want a higher safety um, margin, and that's so, I think what hasn't fully been established yet. So that's what ha what's happening right now. So the stories that we hear about people getting tremors or, or getting sick or dying—that's um, a very very tiny minority, and and you still, even with that, it's going to happen no matter what. Uh, there's just certain people who, um, you know, are intolerable to vaccines. Period. 
Well, I mean, we're still in the learning curve here, but um, certainly vaccines um, have side effects. There is no 100% safe vaccine. There's no 100% safe intervention. And there's always those like on the on the Bell's curve, there's always those that are under responding, those that are over responding. And our question is, can we can we identify those who might be over or under responding? And 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 who are the ones that really benefit from protection and who are the yeah. ones where we want to be a little bit more prudent and that's the learning process that's ongoing and it's, i think it's helpful to say at this point that we just don't really know yet the data is still <laughs> pending on the safety side and will we ever know yeah i think so yeah and, and how long much... how long do you think it will take before we know like <laughs> one year um, well, five years ten years well, it's going in increments. <laughs> so <laughs> the first, I guess, up until up until kind of a frequency of one in a hundred thousand, kind of a risk of having a serious adverse event, um, one in a hundred thousand. That's the data aren't bad right now. It's already this is pretty pretty solid data coming out. Um, yeah. Anything ra more rare than that, it, we don't we just don't know. And it will take probably another six to twelve months to have better data. But was was the death rate really ever alarming? I mean, I'm talking about. Um, I know in the beginning more people were dying because we didn't know what we were doing, and and then uh, you know there were some drugs that came out that were very helpful, um, according to some people. And um, uh, was it a death rate that warranted shutdowns and masks and all of this? Because okay, people get infected. Sometimes there's bad flu years. And sometimes flus are really bad, yeah. but um, and and there's always a population a segment of elderly people who will die from the flu. I mean, yeah. the numbers were astounding two years ago. How many elderly people died from the flu? And the research I've done is that uh, COVID never really reached the numbers of just the regular flu. And if that's true, because I can't get a straight answer from anybody. If that's true, then why is COVID different other than, you know, politics? Yeah. Well, there are many open questions on the field. To me, the COVID experience is a little bit like uh, American football. And as, least, as, as little as I know is that uh, somehow there's a mess. And then once at some point that mess resolves, and then you have all these little red, this yellow flags on the field. And so right now there's a lot of yellow flags on the field and, and I think the referees, the scientists need to actually go and check it out. Like, you know, let's go through this and say, what happened here? What happened here? What happened here? There's a lot to resolve and a lot to learn. And these are, these are extremely hurry, relevant right? questions. Yes. Yeah. You talked <laughs> about really You talked about What really concerns me. Uh, sorry, go ahead. Right. You go first. <laughs> what really concerns me is, is that, a lot of caregivers, I mean, I just, maybe, let me just express the deepest respect that I have. And there is, the reason why is that quite often caregivers are actually providing and holding this space for healing, while medicine is kind of aiming at curing the condition. Caregiver is actually providing the safety, the security, a sense of being being heard, a, a realm of relaxation, a realm of healing space. And there is arrogance quite often. Caregivers, I used to work as a caregiver to, to help me finance my studies <laughs> many years back. So I well remember that arrogance from medical professionals about the caregivers. It's like, yeah, it's nice you're being nice to granny, right? Yeah. <laughs> sort of thing. And and I'd like to ask for forgiveness here. Because <laughs> um, what medical professionals are learning is um, is to know in a situation of crisis. And that's not the openness to hear and to listen. And so in many ways, I wish that um, in medicine, uh, whether it's about COVID or it's about other conditions, that those who have been trained in medical schools or other um, professional trainings um, would really benefit from learning from caregivers about what really matters to those who, who are suffering. 
And that's, isn't it that what we're trying to prevent with immunization programs? Isn't it after all, not numbers that we're treating, but really people? Isn't it yes. after all that it's about the suffering of individuals and not the numbers and the death rates and the statistics and the whatever? Yeah, and I, I know a lot of teachers who claim to care about children, but yet they don't want to go to work, go back to work. And they, they're vaccinated, yeah. and they told us the vaccination will help, but, but now they're saying, well, you still need to wear a mask. Well, you still need to stay away from people. Well, yeah. you still can get it. Well, you still can give it to people. Oh, yeah. my gosh, why are we getting vaccinated if... Uh, yeah. And the answer that I get is, well, we just don't know. Really? Is that the best we can do? Yeah. Well, this is this is part of this pandemic of fear. This is where it's completely going out of hand. So this is where, as a pediatrician, I see the effect in children, and I'm I'm just deeply alarmed by what I see in you know three to six year old children who are in kindergarten and daycare and 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 what their reality is is that they have a sense of i am dangerous you know i may infect i may actually kill my grandmother yeah? what a, what an outset to start your life <laughs> oh my yeah, god i'll mess you up <laughs> these consequences you will have to deal with in in the next decades probably um can i talk about vaccines just in general um there, there's anti-vaxxers out there, and there's those who think anti-vaxxers are, are, uh, you know, endangering the rest of the population. Let's talk yeah. about children's vaccinations. I'm told that sometimes in, in the past that they were giving children as many as five, ten, fifteen, twenty vaccinations at the same time. Is that wise? And some even believe that um, autism's which used to be, I don't know the exact numbers, but maybe one in 100,000. And and today they're like uh, one in 1,000 or one in 500. It's some crazy number. Maybe you know the numbers better than I do. But mm. um, can multiple vaccinations uh, in childhood cause autism? And uh, if so, and if not, uh, how many uh, vaccines, children's vaccines, is it safe to get at one time? And how far should they be spaced apart? Wow, that's many questions. <laughs> okay, so let me let, let me summarize the last twenty years. Um, <laughs> um, well, so maybe in very big strokes, yes, there are people who have strong opinions about vaccines. Um, I found it most helpful to try and be as little opinionated as possible and just look at what can we learn from what we see. And to me, having the questions that the so-called anti-vaxxers have, if we want to stay with this dichotomy, then, then those are really important questions. And those are the questions that need to be taken extremely seriously and need to be tested. Uh, these are hypotheses that need to be verified. And we need the best and most rigorous science to address these questions and very valid concerns. We're, we're immunizing children, we're immunizing healthy people in general. So um, before we do something to somebody healthy, we better follow our own you know, um, ethical guidance of first not doing harm. So that's, a, that's, that's very wise. Now, how many, how many immunizations can you give? There are numbers out there. Um, actually, I don't think that any country gives like 20 vaccines at the same time, but, but there are during childhood in the U.S., when you look at the U.S. immunization schedule, there are like probably 20, some, some odd 20 immunizations that, that kids get throughout as kind of jabs, counting jabs. But at a given time, typically it's one or two immunizations, and then those may be combined, so they may combine more than you know, they may combine antigens or protect against more than one illness. That's a possibility. But it's not like, a, you know, one child is kind of in an acupuncture session of receiving 20, 20 needles or something like that. That's, that's not there. Um, how many can we treat? How many can we accept? Well, um, it's about 10 to the ninth. Our immune system is amazing, like the whole planet that we're living on. The immune system can deal with 10 to the 9 antigens simultaneously. That, to me, that's too much. <laughs> so 
in a vaccine, there is about 10 to the second now, if we're looking at the currently, currently available marketed vaccines. So for the immune system, the immunizations are not a big deal in terms of, you know, is it too much, you know? And, and that's yeah. from day one of being born. So, and kind of an overwhelm isn't really, isn't really there. And they, the body of evidence there is overwhelming. So that's, that, I think that question has been addressed and clear. Yet, there might, it doesn't mean that there are individuals in the population that may actually not handle a given vaccine well. And so that's a, that's a whole different question. Yeah. Okay, well, we're going to take a break, and then we'll talk about your book a little bit. So we'll be right back. Don't go away. Dave Nassani, the caregiver's caregiver, has just released his sixth book entitled It's My Life Too, Thrive to Stay Alive as a Caregiver. It was specifically written for caregivers who know they should be putting their needs first, but just don't know how. Dave is the sole caregiver to his wife, Charlene, since 1996. He knows firsthand what caregivers are going through because he is one. He now speaks all across the country, offering caregivers his amazing caregiver support package. Even the airlines tell us that in the event of an emergency, to put your oxygen mask on first before you help your child with their mask. They know that those who don't heed their advice often black out, thus becoming unable to help either themselves or their child. And caregivers are exactly the same way. It's my life too. Thrive and stay alive as a caregiver will help caregivers who are neglecting their sleep, diet, and social life and learn to put their needs first. Pick up your copy today or buy one for your special caregiver on sale everywhere and at caregiverdave.com. And we're back on the Caregiver Dave Show. I'm Dave Nassani with my guest, Dr. Von Bonhoeffer. And we're talking about vaccines, infectious disease. Uh, now we're talking about uh, your new book, which is called Dare to Care, How to Survive and Thrive in Today's Medical World. What's this book about and who should read it? Thank you. Um, I'm... Uh... Uh, I'm touched by a very similar subtitle to your book. <laughs> so, how to survive and thrive as a caregiver, and how to survive and thrive in the medical world. This is really, um, given the current situation that we're in, this is so topical. So many caregivers and and healthcare professionals are tired, exhausted, worn out, um, burnt out. Caregivers too. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So. Um, it's really exciting to have this conversation. So this book, um, the book Dare to Care, came about by it's it's basically letters to my um, my goddaughter. She's a young um, pediatrician now. She's a young uh, resident in Germany. Oh, I bet and, you're very uh, proud. And I uh, I was kind of looking at what what can I give to her? What is meaningful here? And I felt why not write up all of those things that I have learned during the last 25 years and that they didn't tell me in medical school and that I wish sure. I had known back then. <laughs> so that's, that's what the book is about. It's lessons learned from my clinical life, from caring for people where I failed, where I felt ashamed, where I learned um, and where I was grateful for the lesson. And that's what I passed on. And that's what is now available in this book in terms of different letters to Hannah, my goddaughter. <laughs> Hannah. So is there a particular letter that, um, that we need to hear? Uh, for example, just singling one out that would um, uh, impact us emotionally? Hmm. Um, uh, may not well, be prepared to maybe, do that, but maybe, maybe uh, there is, think about it. And uh, yeah, well, one most most of those stories. Each chapter has a story that has kind of changed the way I practice. And um, one of the probably most profound stories was that I uh, worked in hospital as a as an attending as as an infectious disease physician and. Um, I was called to a nine-month-old baby, Jasmina. And you remember um, the name? How how flattering! <laughs> I'm I'm allowed to to tell her name. The family has allowed me to 
to, to say that, to share this story. And um, Jasmina had a had a, an illness that meant that her lifespan would be very short, probably not more than a year or two. And um, she had a respiratory tract infection like many babies have every winter called respiratory syncytial virus, RSV. So it's a cough and a cold essentially for most kids. And some need a bit of oxygen, but she had an illness that meant her muscles are not strong enough to cough. Oh. And it meant that she was unable to get rid of the phlegm and that she was unable to actually go through the work of the baby to keep the breathing up. And so at some point it became clear uh, in her journey that um, this would become really difficult for her. And so I was called to the room and there was a, there was a lot of excitement in the room. The nurses were running around and, you know, all sorts of things were happening and it was very, very high frequency in the room. And so I, I went to the mother first and just took her hand and sat down with her next to the baby and just looked at her and said, wow, it's a lot right now, right? She just bursted into tears and had the possibility to let go of her fear and of the of the stress for a moment. So we quietened down the, the room and we said that all the nurses are okay to leave and fast forward. Um, we were breaking all the rules in the hospital. <laughs> so we were bringing in an adult bed. <laughs> she was wishing for that. I said, what would you really like now? What would be important for you? She said, the baby cot is so small and I'm used to be in my bed and have my baby with me and I can't be with her right now. I'm distanced by these metal bars. And so I said, okay. I asked the nurse and said, can you please bring an adult bed? But this is a, yeah, I said, just please, just bring an adult bed. Let's have it here, okay? So actually they brought two. <laughs> so we created this little space where both parents could be where Jasmina could be, and we're bringing in candles, totally not allowed, bringing in scents, completely not part of the program. <laughs> we were stopping a lot no. of monitoring, a lot of interventions, and it turned out to be um, that there was, that Jasmina was dying. She was actually leaving her body during that day. But there was a, it was, a, it was healing the process, very clearly tangible for, for the parents that in the process of dying, there was a process of healing for the, full, for, for the family. And, and I would include myself as being blessed to be part of a healing process. So I wasn't providing and doing anything to this family, but taking part in, in, in a healing process that was guided by the child. That's an amazing story, and uh, you're right. You were probably breaking all the rules because it's not in the manual that you should do that, but uh, heck with the manual, right? <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, yeah. In your opinion, what, what, should we doing, what should we be doing to help support our healthcare workers through the pandemic and beyond? As you said, many of them are burned out, and... You know, maybe the rule book doesn't provide for helping them in ways that they need help. So you just gave a great example of helping a patient. Uh, are there similar stories where that we could be changing things or breaking some rules to be helping some of the healthcare workers? Yeah, absolutely. Um, we are trained to give the best. We're trained to deliver gold standard. We're kind of conditioned to not be to never be good enough, and again, there's fear of doing something wrong. Of, there's fear of harming, and I guess everybody in the everybody caring for somebody else knows this. Everybody knows the fear, um, and everybody knows the 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 doubt. Um, am I really doing the right thing here? Um, Yes, nourishing the healer, putting the oxygen mask on first, <laughs> is is absolutely critical. 
It is not a luxury, it's a necessity. And nobody is trained in this. It's the other way around. In a healthcare system that is increasingly driven by lawyers and economists, rather than caregivers and healthcare professionals, uh -huh. um, the lemon is being squeezed increasingly. Uh -huh. And it is about time that we are reclaiming sovereignty, not as a power game, but actually sovereignty of the heart. And that is a systemic change that is needed, yet we're only going to be credible in this. And as, you know, if this is not to be a political power game of professional organizations, we have to walk our talk. And that means to actually start with practices ourselves and to kind of discipline ourselves to nourish us as a healer, to replenish our batteries. And there's so many amazing tools available, techniques available for thousands of years that we could easily just learn from other domains and, and integrate in our process as part of being more professional than before. I think you should be called Dr. Love because <laughs> you are the doctor of love. Uh, many people have unconsciously infected themselves with fear and anxiety by dooms scrolling, your word, during the pandemic. Um, why are negative emotions so contagious? And how can people guard against being overcome by them? Um, and then you talk about uh, non-love, that it's a disease also, and it can be passed from person to person, that medical professionals are often the carriers of this condition. Uh, explain all that. Yeah, it's the, <laughs> the 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 much bigger pandemic than yeah. uh, than COVID is yeah. is fear. And if you like the virus, the agent that we're transmitting from one to another is non-love. And we have all been <clears throat> trained in this, and I'm I'm including myself in this. And I guess everybody, being humble. <laughs> Um, about their own mistakes and failures and forgetfulness will yeah we're 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 training ourselves in acts of non love and and you and you define that as uh, uh failing to uh give a quick definition again mistakes yeah. and uh it's it's forgetting that we are caring for a shared expression of life. Getting are, our oath. Yeah, we are alive and we are caring for life and we haven't created this and we're not mastering this. We are guests. We're, we're privileged to share a journey together and the arrogance that the medical profession is exerting to a ridiculous degree is... Um, is is I don't know I don't have a word for it it's it's shameful um, it's arrogant <laughs> it's arrogant it's arrogant and it's about time that we're learning humbleness and we're learning that humbleness is a strength and a virtue rather than rather than a weakness we are trained to to always know that the patient has the problem and as the care Givers, as the professionals, we have the solution, and that's our job to provide the solution. In my experience, the longer I'm in this profession, I feel that basically, like close to almost, the patient knows much better what they're actually needing on their journey than, than I do. Mm. And, and I'm really well advised to listen longer so and yeah. more carefully to what the intuitive direction is, and then once I really get that, then I may bring in my five cents of, you know, actually there's a, I, I happen to know and have an idea about how this could be accomplished, you know. Wow. That's not the way that we're trained. And, and that's where the love comes in is we really have a genuine interest in the person in front of us and in their healing journey. Or are we more busy with our own needs and making a diagnosis quickly and turning over to the next patient rapidly and and you know having a making diagnosis very quickly and priding ourselves in doing so? Um, there's a lot to learn, I think, for us to to 
to grow to a next level of, of practicing medicine again. Yeah. Why is uh, compassionate listening, as you like to put those two words together, um, an important part of the healthcare process, but is often overlooked? Um, and it's it's not even a skill for most healthcare workers. You know, they they're just I don't know what what is the training, or maybe they just forgot their training. I, I can't imagine them not being trained to do all these things that we're talking about. Is it is it that they were never trained, uh, or is it because they were trained and forgot, or is it because they're just too dang busy? They're, they're, the system is too overwhelmed. What, what's your opinion? Uh, I can't speak for everybody, and probably it's different in different places on the planet. But to the many thousands of colleagues that I talked, is generally not being trained unless you were fortunate enough to have a role model. Uh, you know, a, a mentor in in your in your career, and and there are many amazing mentors out there who are actually training and teaching that. But it's not a it's not part of the systemic, systematic. It's not part of the syllabus to train and teach. It's the contrary. What we're trained and taught in is strategic conversation. It's strategic mm. questioning. It's strategic listening. It's basically. When I, when I talk to a patient as a healthcare professional, the way it's defined today is that then, then I need to ask the questions in a way that I'm going down my differential diagnostic algorithm to arrive at a diagnosis and label, then I know the treatment and then I'm fine and I can move on. So my needs are met and I hope that some of your needs are also met. Um, that's very different to actually compassionate listening which is non-strategic. And then this is the, the, the magic that happens, is then suddenly the patient is telling this, this story, is, is completely changes. There's a completely different story that is being de delivered, and, and that yeah. changes the entire direction of the healing process. So as, as physicians, by strategic listening, we're actually undermining the healing process of the patient crazy. It's true. And you know, it, it sounds to me like you're describing uh, Dr. Patch Adams, if you know who he is. Robin Williams did a whole movie about him. And I was actually supposed to speak on stage with him at the CNN Center uh, this last year, but pandemic uh, caused him to not be able to make it. I was so disappointed. Um, but uh, is that true? I mean, is, yeah. is Dr. Patch Adams uh, one of your models that you're trying to emulate and duplicate? I wouldn't put it like this, but I have deep <laughs> respect for him. He's an incredibly colorful person, and I had the, uh, the opportunity to actually meet with him. He came to our first um, congress in San Francisco, and uh, he spoke there, and we had some time to talk, and uh, we had lots of opportunity to share thereafter, and I'm still hoping that after COVID, it will be possible to have him come to Switzerland. Yeah, me too. <laughs> yeah. He's, a, he's a wonderful being and such a pure, wonderful heart um, with, a, with a colorful personality, and it's an amazing person. I have deep respect for him. Um, his, so obviously, his, he was trained correctly, <laughs> or, or was he not? Did he just you know, throw the book away and came up with his own book? Well, I mean, as as it could be seen in the in in the in the movie, is that he he understood what a healing process is before he went into medical school. He has been he's seen the dark side of life. He's seen the lonely dark rooms, <laughs> and he's seen. He's seen, he has experienced suffering, and he's also understood what it is that helps us, fundamentally helps us to deal with suffering, and that whatever medicine has to provide doesn't really touch the suffering at the root. It touches the signs and symptoms of it, but it doesn't really get to the root cause of it. And he saw that humor is one of the ways deal with this and deep listening is one of the ways to really go deeper than than the signs and symptoms of illness and that relieving the pain of a fracture is can be a blessing for those who have the pain of a fracture but it doesn't really get to the suffering and, and that's just that's 
just be, becoming a human in the midst of being a professionally trained person. And that's what we're lacking so often. But that's None of my colleagues is lacking being a human, but we're not having the courage to allow us to be that. There is this idea of professional distance that is in the way. So it takes courage. Courage against uh, ridicule from your peers, courage against yes. uh, pushback, yeah. political courage. Yeah. This was wonderful to see with, with the book Dare to Care. I was really fearful. I was really, I was really nervous when, when this, about the book when it came out. I was like, whoa, this is like I'm really going to be marginalized going to be ridiculed. Well, especially during this time. I don't know how long you were writing it for, but it's like, yeah. okay, it's coming out. Now this is the environment it's coming out in. It's like a big target on your back. Yes. Yeah. So how has how that working out for you, doctor? <laughs> well, it's been, it's been, I was really, I was, I was actually crying when I received the first endorsements. I was actually crying that, that I felt, wow, actually it is, it is received well. It is and actually who endorsed received. you. Yeah. Sorry. Tell us who in who endorsed you. Ah. Um. Well, I was sending the book to to several colleagues that I would that I really wanted to hear their their opinion of, and um, I was I was really touched that uh, Peter Sullivan, a professor at Oxford. Um, who was one of my mentors as a student and young resident um, has been really, he has set a lot of, you know, he was really important to setting the path in, in my um, develop, professional development. And uh, I kind of came back to him 20 years later and with this, and so, you know, this is what, <laughs> this is what happens 20 years later to one of your students. And, and he wrote a really beautiful um, endorsement and uh, James Doty from Stanford has written and I highly respect James Doty and um, there, there's a number of colleagues um, Michael Gold from Australia uh, so several kind of if you like colleagues at, at other universities training centers uh, medical schools who have really um, valued this and and felt this is an important direction for mm -hmm. us to take and to give more emphasis that was really encouraging for me Wow, that's awesome. Um, what can patients do to assure that they get the attention that they need if they're not getting it? What do you recommend they do? Uh, scream and yell, kick and, uh, <laughs> or is there are there better ways? Um, I feel that patient um, there's a there's a tremendous opportunity. To empower patients in requesting the care that they're deserving, and I feel as as healthcare professionals, we are not stepping up in the best, you know, the, in the best version of ourselves by being uh -huh. so-called professionals. And I feel I would really like to encourage patients to to request to being heard um, rather than to being treated. Um, the only, the most powerful way that I know as a physician is that when a patient is really looking into my eyes and pointing out that I'm stressed right now <laughs> and that I'm kind of, that I'm not really giving them the attention that they deserve, that's what really touches me. Wow. So complaints, you know, screaming, yelling. I have learned, as, as, as hard as it sounds and as, as shameful as it is to say that, but I have learned to kind of create a bit of a protection shield that if, if somebody's yelling and screaming at me, then I'm kind of taking that professional distance and like, okay, so I hear that you're angry, you know, and then we're going into this conversation type stuff. Well, I know you're, you're different than you're unusual and, and um how would you recommend that patients react if they're not being treated the way they want to be treated to uh, someone other than yourself who maybe doesn't have your gifts of understanding and compassion, et cetera, someone who's less likely to hear them? I have trust that every human being um, 
is available as a human being, as stressed as they are. I haven't met a single colleague who is not a human being. <laughs> and sometimes it needs a bit of a wake-up call. And um, I find myself so often in situations where I didn't show up understandable and compassionate, but I was actually stressed out and I kind of lost my track. Um, and I was quite full of myself and arrogant and felt like I need to manage the patients on the ward now and all sorts of things. So <laughs> I have... Oh, who is to blame, you know? <laughs> this is so easy to, to step into this sure. trap. It could happen to you. It could happen to anybody, right? As a patient, if, if we're connecting to our hearts, we're taking a deep breath and we're recognizing I'm not being treated in the way that I need. This doesn't feel right. Something is off. Mm. I, would, I would encourage to anyone, whether healthcare <laughs> professional or patient, deep breath to actually anchor ourselves in our heart yeah. and to speak from there. The language of the heart is always heard. It may only be kind of heard at night when the healthcare professional goes to sleep and is reviewing the day. Mm -hmm. It will be heard and it, it will be one tiny step towards a more bringing more heart into healthcare. Well, in the last couple of minutes of our show, um, I understand you founded a heart-based medicine, a nonprofit foundation, and global network of healthcare professionals that's gathering data and bringing together experts on the impact of love on health. Uh, yeah. What do you hope to achieve through this effort? I would love to see a transformation of the current healthcare system as it is. Yeah. And I feel that this is... I had this crazy vision. So I, I worked with the World Health Organization as an infectious disease specialist and, and you know, advising global health programs. And I thought, wow, if I can do this, maybe I learned something. And maybe we can actually, and this was a bottom-up approach. Um, so we started with a few physicians actually getting together and saying we need to change the way we deal with vaccine safety. And, and it has changed the way that, that this is now happening. So maybe we can do the same by bringing more heart into healthcare. And this uh -huh. is a bottom-up approach. So one heart at a time, one physician at a time. And this is what heart-based medicine is about, to create a network of caregivers and healthcare professionals, everybody who knows about the value of care, and learn from each other and co-create a medicine where the heart yeah. is really at the center and love is the fundamental healing source that isn't really recognized in the way that it could be, I feel. That's awesome. So how can someone get a hold of you or buy your book or answer any questions? There's a, there's a website, heartbasedmedicine.org, and there are you know, all the contact possibilities. There are, um, I'm trying to learn about uh, social media. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I'm trying to find my ways here. This is a very new world for me. But uh, those should be channels too. <laughs> so uh, there's email. Um, so yeah, all of those contact points are, are available. And uh, I would love to um, be in interaction and, and create that field of, of people who care deeply um, about changing and transforming our medicine in a way that you'd like to see it. So uh, uh, there's a big welcome and invitation to join and yeah. co-create a different kind of um, medicine that I hope serves our next generation of children. Well, you were an amazing guest. I thank you so much for coming on and answering questions in an honest and compassionate and uh, transparent way. Uh, that's unusual, and we appreciate it. And thank you to all the listeners who show up every single week, week after week. And just a reminder to go to caregiverdave.com, our website for caregivers to help you not just survive but to thrive caregiving. And we have three free gifts for everyone who will just register, it's free. Just give us your email and you'll get these gifts and they will help you a lot. One is a, uh, are you a candidate for a burnout quiz? Another one is a copy of my uh, first book in ebook form. And the other is this audio to help you sleep and stay asleep. So great gifts. Thank you again for uh, everyone tuning in and thank you, doctor. And I just appreciate you so much. It was a great show. And we'll see you Thank next you, time. Bye-bye. Thank you, Dave. Thanks a lot. Great honor. Fantastic. Thanks. Sometimes it feels 
Like the sun will never rise, like the birds will never sing.